everybody, Chuck Marone checking in again with you. Last week, I announced to you the year of action here at Strong Towns and let you know about the local motive tour. Uh, we've had a good response. Uh, people are, are getting signed up and the train is getting ready to leave. In just a few weeks, we will be taking off on this tour. I, I want you to go get signed up right now. If you are someone who is interested in learning how to put Strong Towns ideas into effect in your community, this tour is for you. It's reasonably priced. We made this very affordable. Uh, you can get up to 10 continuing education credits if you need them. And uh, if you don't need them, you're just going to get a, a lot of really good stuff at a very affordable price. Go to strongtowns.org forward slash local motive. That's L-O-C-A-L, local motive, M-O-T-I-V-E, all one word. Go there today and get signed up and join many other people who are working this year in the year of action to put Strong Towns ideas to work in their place. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. So can we talk about cities a little bit? Sure. <laughs> you make the argument, and I agree with it, that American cities are the opposite of crowded. They need more people. It seems obvious that a city like Cleveland, which you know is a place way off its population high, you talk about Cleveland a couple times in the book, it, it seems like they would obviously benefit from more people. If we're growing families and we're welcoming immigrants, how do they end up in Cleveland and not just in the handful of hot cities today, the New Yorks, the San Francisco, the D.C. areas. So, I mean, some of that I do think is natural, right? That like one, you're talking about Moynihan, right? And like how policy changes culture, et cetera, et cetera. I'm a city guy. I, I said a bunch of times I, I grew up in Manhattan. I've got a kid in, in D.C. But having kids, especially a lot of kids, is not the comparative advantage of big cities, I don't want to say like you should only have kids in small towns because that's not me, but it's more natural, right? Like to the extent that people uh, start families and have larger families, they're going to be more inclined to want to go to places where there's more space available and where there's perhaps more tight knit kinds of communities, things like that. Whereas to the extent that people have no children, I think they're going to be more inclined to go to places where there's lots of interesting restaurants to go to, and they don't care that much about outside space. I mean, that's just sort of life. Uh, but we can also do policies that particularly if we if we have a growing population, and not everything is zero sum. Thanks to the pandemic, we are now seeing naturally some movement of tech and finance employment out of New York and San Francisco. And I think anybody who looks at that objectively just like thinks that that's good. Like, I hope, I hope that that works. Unfortunately, what you see is that the natural tendency is to go from San Francisco to Austin or as Goldman Sachs is doing from New York to, to Miami. Miami. Right. And that doesn't necessarily achieve anything useful for like us as a culture. I would love it if companies just all on their own were like, hey, let's go to Cleveland 
but that doesn't seem to be in the cards. I've learned a lot in life from libertarians, to be honest, about the virtues of markets and the perils of excessive government intervention. But I think there's something deliberately It's like only an intellectual could talk themselves into the idea that we just have no interest as a country in whether Cleveland and Detroit and Milwaukee and St. Louis and Kansas City and like dozens of other cities just sink into the ashes. Like that's crazy. You know what I mean? And so we have to do something to steer investment toward uh, Midwestern cities. They exist. Lots of people are there. There's a tremendous amount of housing stock, physical infrastructure, cultural amenities, all bound up there. We were at the point a couple of years ago where they were like, well, maybe the Detroit Institute of Art should have to sell off its collection because the city is bankrupt. And like, that's nuts. Like, imagine every Midwestern city shrinking to the point where its old pension obligations mean they go bankrupt, to the point where they have to sell off all their art collections. So now even fewer people want to live there. So they shrink more. Like that's that's absurd. Like the don't don't do that. Well, like, especially when you when you balance it with the you know the other alternative you're laying out, which is okay, let's let's go to Cleveland and add a hundred thousand people. You know, would that be worse? Or better than selling off the family jewels and, uh, you know, making this place lesser of a place. Right. Because it's like, you know, if if the Cleveland Orchestra dissolves, like, how do you even reassemble it? Like, does that become the Austin Orchestra? Or is there just like a cultural treasure that's, that's gone forever? So, you know, so one thing I talk about is directed immigration. That right now we have a program that's like your company can sponsor high-tech workers who come here for a number of years and they have to work for you. So maybe a city should be able to do that, right? Like on an opt-in basis. Say, I want to sponsor skilled workers who are going to come to Cleveland and they'll live here. And that gives companies, because we know companies want to employ these people, an incentive to make investments there. And, you know, the people come for a few years. Most of them will probably leave. Some might stay. But the investment exists, right? Like once that office is there, then somebody, a native born American who just has family connections to Ohio has a good white collar employer, right? Because right now, you know, people leave where they're born for all kinds of different reasons. And a lot of people though, wind up uh, particularly when they're older, when they have kids, like gravitating back toward family ties. But that only works if there's something for you to do there that's remunerative and and in line with with your interests and, and your career. We can also move government agencies. You know, I I, I talk about it in the book. It's like, well, does the National Institutes of Health need to be in? But that it's a little bit of a poorly chosen example because we're in the middle yeah, of a pandemic yeah, right now. But you're like the Bureau of Engraving is one you brought up. You know, like, why right. Why do we insist that that be in the prime real estate in the heart of D.C.? Right. And that's a great example. You know, Bureau of Printing Engraving, it takes up about two city blocks in D.C. Um, if they were not there, they would put hotels there. They would generate tax revenue for the city, customers for our restaurants. Nobody would miss the Bureau of Printing and Engraving. That said, if you had two city blocks full of office workers and a kind of manufacturing in an underbuilt Midwestern city, 
it would be the exact opposite. People would say, oh, this is great. Like instead of parking lots or just empty land, we have buildings full of people. They're buying lunch. They're buying houses, right? It's supporting our economy. So it's actually positive sum to within reason move things out of an expensive sort of over-trafficked city like Washington into a sort of overbuilt under its peak population kind of place. And there's a lot of wins we can make like that. And I think we should think about how we can apply that kind of thinking to the private sector as well. Right. I feel like you and I have a strong agreement about gentrification concerns, both, you know, that it's real and gentrification is real and needs to be addressed but also that, you know, the answer is not freezing things in amber or denying neighborhoods investment capital. At Strong Towns, our approach to gentrification is incremental development, you know, sacrificing kind of the pace of growth so that the growth is more prosperous and more stable, you know, in, in a broad sense. What's the one billion Americans response to gentrification? I don't want to dismiss concern about gentrification, but I do think this is a thing where, you know, people like me, media people need to um, check ourselves a little bit because gentrification is a huge issue in New York and in Washington, but it's a mistake to over generalize that. Um, particularly, I should say, the malign form of gentrification, where investment leads to higher prices, leads to displacement of people who would like to stay there, right? In most, many American cities, uh, gentrification is additive, right? Like if some new condos go up in Syracuse, and that leads to like yoga studios and Whole Foods and stuff there, Syracuse is really cheap. You know, like people there just like they need more jobs. They need more stuff to do. So you could look at the neighborhood and be like, ah, they uh, downtown Bangor, Maine is like this. It's become, quote unquote, gentrified recently. But there's no housing displacement from Bangor, Maine. Um, there's really few people in Maine. Like it's, there's plenty of space. It's, it's, it's not the issue. So we shouldn't focus too much on the aesthetics, right? And just say that like yuppie stuff is bad. That's that's not the case. What is bad is when people can't, you know, stay broadly in their communities. Uh, but that's often driven by total exclusion of new development from places that are already prosperous. So people look at where the cranes are and they say, well, what's happening in this community? And they don't ask the question in, in DC. It's like, well, why are there no cranes in Cleveland Park? The land there is much more expensive than the land in, in Shaw, where I live. Uh, we have the development and we have the gentrification, but that's because there's no development happening west of, of Rock Creek Park. There's no development happening in Arlington. There's no development happening in almost anywhere in Montgomery County in the suburbs. So particularly in a world of broad population growth, you need broad growth in the housing stock right? Essentially everywhere. And then you don't have this, you know, it's like, like sunlight is great, but when you use a magnifying glass, you can kill an ant with the sun. That's a great analogy. Yeah. And that's what we're doing with our zoning, right? If you say like, there's just one neighborhood where you can build, then the process of capital investment becomes weirdly destructive. 
Uh, but it shouldn't be, right? Like there should just be some development happening hither and yon and it it rains down and it's economic opportunity for everybody. It's when you hyper-focus it, you create this very problematic situation. Right. You go into any city and the, the bargain that is made is 95% of the city will have no change and all the change will be felt in 5% of the city. And it's very disruptive to both parts, actually. Exactly. And the other thing is that, you know, stasis is a, is a myth, right? You can freeze the building stock in place, but you can't freeze the community in place. Little Italy in, well, I was thinking Little Italy in New York, but Little Italy in any American city that has a Little Italy is not Little Italy anymore. Like you can't stop Italian Americans from integrating into mainstream American society, nor would you want to, but it would be aesthetically cool if Mulberry Street looked like the Godfather, right? But it's, it's, that's not how human society works. <laughs> all, all Italians have to stay in this neighborhood because we all like it that way. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, like the Bronx that my grandfather lived in, like it's gone. I bet the apartment building that he grew up in is still there, but the community doesn't exist anymore. And there's nothing you can do about that, right? And so trying to use freezing of the built environment as a way to engineer social change is very ineffective, right? And you tend to have a lot of unintended consequences. And you just need to accept that like neighborhoods are gonna change, communities are gonna change, things are gonna change no matter what we do. And then you can think like, okay, are regulations like reducing actual harms or are they just expressing aesthetic hopes that are not going to pan out? Right, right. Let me give you the place that I struggle the most with your your book, your thesis. I live in a small town. My city's population is 14,000. And a big part of my living here is I've come to kind of loathe the centralized pro-growth policies. It's not that I'm anti-growth, but the growth policies that we have as a country now feel like this conquering cultural army coming in where you either, you know, join the winning team or you get marginalized. You're either going to you know, invite the big box stores, the fast food franchises, the the big infrastructure projects. You're going to, you know, get the big government, big corporation version, or you're going to get nothing. And we've argued here at Strong Towns for a long time that the pattern of growth, the way we actually go about building places, the the interchanges, the frontage roads, the suburban subdivisions, that it's actually making us poorer. It's not making our cities wealthier. It's It's making them poorer. I feel like I can buy into the concept of 1 billion Americans, but not with the growth approach we have now. I feel like the dichotomy here, let me read what I wrote. You seem to be arguing that our economic system needs dramatically more growth for us to be prosperous, but also to an extent that we can't continue in this economic approach without some reckoning. Am I understanding you? And I guess, how do you resolve those things? What what needs to change about our economic system and our way of growing in order to make 1 billion Americans actually a prosperity generating thing as opposed to a prosperity killing thing? Well, you know, this winds up being my answer to a lot of questions that people have, which is that there are problems that would exist if we keep the status quo in place and we aim for higher population growth. But those problems also exist if we don't 
aim for higher population growth, right? So I think that the work that you guys do on, uh, you know, small town economic development is incredibly important. I think that the way I think of it connecting to 1 billion Americans is that like small town I know really well is uh, Blue Hill, Maine. And they are doing things there that I see why they think it's good, right? They are bringing more stores to town, which generate tax revenue. And the way they are doing it is they are attracting stores that want plentiful parking. And they can't provide that in the historic downtown. So they're building this kind of supplemental retail district out of town. And I'm saying to them, it's like, you should read Chuck's stuff (laughs) because, well, what you're going to do is you're going to put out of business the downtown shops. When those shops are out of business, people aren't going to want to come to the B&Bs and stuff like that. And now you're going to wind up being a town that has no center or like a church that's surrounded by vacant buildings. And you're going to have these parking lots and the actual prosperity is going to go to some other town that's like sort of nearby and people will go to the Dunkin' Donuts, but like they're going to live in a town that's nice. I want people to do that. But the way we are now, the towns that get smart will prosper and the towns that don't will fail. But if every town got smart simultaneously, well, rural America as a whole is just still going to be depopulated, right? So that's troubling. I want like a rising tide, right? That gives everybody a chance to succeed so that the kind of mid-sized cities that have been losing people, you know, there's no guarantee that they'll attract residents, but it's easier if the population's growing. And the same thing for small towns, create a circumstance in which good policy will work, right? Because the raw materials in terms of like human beings and human ingenuity is there. Then we want to manage that well rather than poorly. I mean, you are exactly right. So many places are not being thoughtful about what is their sources of strength and what are their sources of weakness and are their development policies building on strength or undermining it. And that's something you know, we need to think about like what whatever we do with immigration and family policy and, and anything else, that there's too much, you know, superficial thinking uh, about growth. And, and you know much more about this in the in the details of the road maintenance and, and everything else that, that than I do. But I just think that problem exists like one way or the other. Right. It's just interesting to me because the idea of if you came to my part of the world, or even if you came to you know the the, the main cities that you're looking at, and you said, "Hey, here's twenty uh, percent faster growth," they would say, "Yay, more parking lots and big box stores." And the way I would talk about it is, we need to make the growth more bottom up as opposed to top down. That seems a little bit sometimes at odds with centralized policy that is designed to supercharge growth. Does that make sense? Well. Yeah, I mean, I see what you mean. At the same time, I think in some situations, centralized decision-making can facilitate bottom-up activity, right? So, you know, I was in uh, Leesburg, Virginia the other day because it's um, it's like close enough to D.C. that that you get there on a day trip, but it's, it's very different. 
you know, from DC. And this is a sort of classic American small town that is being the waves of exurban growth are starting to to lap at its edges. And, you know, they're doing very well there. Uh, Northern Virginia is a very prosperous kind of part of the country. But they are seeing, like, all the growth is, like, strip malls and, like, things that are weird and out of town rather than additive uh, to, to what's really in there. But it's very expensive, right? Like, the downtown Leesburg real estate is incredibly costly. And you have there exactly the dynamic you have in so many exclusionary suburbs, which is that the incumbents just kind of want to keep people away. And they're pushing the development way, way, way out of town. So if Virginia as a state were to say, look, we are going to say that you have to allow housing to be built in expensive places, whether that means like Arlington or whether it means Leesburg or whatever else, that's centralized, right? But what happens next is bottom up, right? Is instead of the planner saying, oh, you're going here, you're going there, we're seeing like, where is there demand for people to live? And like, people want to be close to historic Leesburg, Virginia. Like, it's it's nice, it's cool. And, you know, so we should do that. We should add housing there rather than adding housing in these like weird subdivisions five miles away from where people really want to be. And that would create, that's a much more natural pattern of urban growth. Moscow, right, because the Soviets, has this, this weird hopscotch where there's a lot of stuff in the middle because that's where the czarist city is. And then the central planners were like, well, we don't want any more of this. So development pops out at these distant rings. An amazing amount of American communities look like that even though we think of ourselves as like, well, we have free markets, but in land use, like we have adopted Soviet practices. And so we have this very similar outcome, which is not how historic cities grew or were created uh, because it's crazy. Yeah. Very good point. Yeah, absolutely. Before the pandemic, there were many people, myself included, and I, I think you as well, that were arguing that there's a huge bubble in commercial real estate. We, we've overbuilt the amount of office space, retail space, especially in our major cities. Do you think the narrative about the pandemic changing the way we work and live is overblown? Do you think that people are going to flood back into office cubicles once the vaccine is widely available? Well, I think we're going to see like a double movement, right? So right now, there's a lot of everything's going to be different kind of takes. People are going to get vaccinated and there's going to be an incredible rush to go back to normal and just gushing about it. You know, like there are good things about working in offices with other people and what those things are is going to be so evident to everyone after a year of not doing it. Then we're going to see what really happens, right? So I, I don't work for anybody right now, but my former employer, um, Box, Box Media, was a company that had, they called it a remote first office culture. And so that meant like there were offices, uh, big ones in New York and DC, small ones in San Francisco and Chicago, uh, but everybody was allowed to work from any office or no office. People could be in DC, but report to a manager in New York or vice versa. We had managers in Ohio, every meeting, was like on Zoom, you you could gather in person. This is how we work as an organization too, right? Yeah. And I didn't realize actually how few organizations have that model, but I've learned. 
now that everybody has learned to use Zoom, schedule a meeting, to communicate on Slack, I think nobody is going to go back to not using those tools, right? So it's a bit of an open question. At, at Vox, you know, most people worked in an office most days, but it's not 100% of people. And that would be a big change, right? If companies start seeing 10, 20% of their workforces go remote, uh, that's a large change, right? Particularly in the prices that you see in certain things. Because the, the way price dynamics work, right, is if if the supply is constrained, like they're not adding new offices to the DC Central Business District for Hyde Building Act reasons, the price can get really high based on a kind of excess of demand. If that demand falls, the price may really crash, right? Not that nobody will be in the office buildings, but that it'll be dramatically cheaper and possibly the offices become more spacious, you know, because be, because it's cheaper. And then you think about, well, what impact does that have on sort of random office parks that are just like out by the airport for no reason? And I think those become unviable, right? In a circumstance where, look, if you want central business district office space, you can just go get some because it's not that expensive. Then what do people need all these like rinky dink, like it's Marginal four stories by a, right. by a highway? Because that's what it exists for right now. Right now it's like if you want, quote unquote, some office space, but you don't want to break the bank. There's lots of landlords who are in the business of providing that to you. And I think in the future, that's going to go away. If you want, quote unquote, some office space, you'll be able to get good office space for not that much money because a lot of people are going to decide they don't really need it. And so then that whole universe of, you know, like there's a bank branch in the ground floor and some generic stuff and you're kind of in the middle of nowhere and the town is relying on your tax revenue because uh, they don't need to provide services. Like, I, I think that's going to be a real challenge for a lot of jurisdictions. And of course, for the big cities, because right now, like San Francisco is so careless about its public budget because they're just sitting on this gusher of you know, people want to be in the San Francisco financial district and the financial district isn't going to go away and San Francisco isn't going to go away, but your ability to extract rents is going to go away. You're going to have to provide reasonable value um, in the same way that, I don't know, Jacksonville does. Okay. So let me ask you this, because I, I agree with that. I, I feel like the shakeout will not be that New York is going to empty out or New York, you know, Manhattan's going to empty out, but that the rents will be cheaper and it'll be occupied by different people. That's going to affect the way all this is, is financed and the way, you know, all those financial products based on these high valuations. You, you wrote an article today on your site, slowboring.com about transit funding and about the crisis of transit and how, you know, we're, we're having this difficulty now because ridership is down, keeping transit systems operating. This seems bizarre to me that in the richest cities in the country, and really like the richest districts of those cities, we can't run what is a sense, an essential service at a high standard. My takeaway from your article is that these places are too important. We need to bail out these transit systems, but we also need reform. 
What does that look like to you? How do you, in a case like New York or a case like DC or a case like San Francisco, where these transit systems are such an integral part to the real estate values and the life in those places, how do we tie that together in a way where you get beyond paying debt out of the fare box or, you know, paying capital improvements out of how much some, you know, poor person can pay to, to ride in from Long Island? I mean, New York's operational practices are so medieval that it's actually it's actually easy to name reforms. Uh, the most obvious one is they use two-person crews to run the subway, and nobody else does that. I mean, D.C. doesn't do it. Paris doesn't do it. London doesn't do it. They just shouldn't do that. You can get the costs way, 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 way down on that. Uh, you know, most cities don't have such an egregious problem that, you know, I can just like rattle off, like, here's what Seattle needs to do. But, you know, in almost every case, you see a big union wage premium for bus drivers relative to what, because buses, we know there's private sector buses. Um, there's all different kinds of buses. Ed Glazer has a good paper that just looking very comprehensively at buses. And, you know, the basic shape of it is, Nobody wants to say, okay, well, we really got to put the screws to bus drivers. Like they're the fat cats um, of our society. But if a city like San Francisco sees a huge negative shock to its tax revenues, then like, yeah, you got to look at why are you paying the bus drivers that much? And then you dive deeper into it. You know, if you talk to uh, Jarrett Walker, he's a Oh yeah, I know Jared well, right. He's like he's like a bus mastermind. He but is. he's a nice he's a nice guy. So he he doesn't want to like front load these issues. But if you if you delve in with him, it's like, well, why can't you do it this way? Why can't you do it that way? It's a lot of times the work rules make it difficult to just hire a part-time driver. But like lots of people work part-time. It's a very normal part of existence. And we know that demand for transit services is not uniform throughout the day. I mean, that's common sense, right? In the middle of the day, like you would like the bus to run, but it's not important for it to be as high frequency as it is uh, in morning and evening rushes. So, you know, you can change the contracting practices there. So what I talk about in, in the transit piece, what we don't want to see happen is New York City subway, T in Boston, uh, Metro in DC, CTA in Chicago. We don't want to see them suddenly collapse because of a one-off pandemic shock. But we do want to see them reform, right? I mean, you want a basic fiscal deal where they are given money upfront so that services can continue to run next year, but where that is paid back with operational reforms that... In, in the long run, save tons and tons of money and can get you to better run cities. There's a lot of political economy kinds of things. It would surprise a lot of people to know that like in Denmark, right, which is a socialist utopia, staggeringly high taxes in Denmark to fund a very generous welfare state. But all their bus operations are contracted out. Like that's a fully privatized function in Copenhagen. Uh, America has this very fissured welfare state where like almost nobody is in a union. Therefore, it's incredibly important to like fight like a rabid dog to preserve these weird pockets of unionization, which then adopt incredibly inefficient practices. And that, that's like, a, it, it's a tough 
problem to solve. But cities that take a hit to their tax revenue, like they got to look at what they're spending on. Are they spending on things that deliver value to citizens or are they spending things on sort of nice to haves as long as you can make billionaires pay for it? Right. You were the co-founder of Vox, but you've recently moved on to do something new, a new venture. Can you just tell us what you're, tell us what you're doing? I want people who are listening to be able to follow your work. How would they go about doing that? Before I founded Vox, I was a I was a blogger. I was an independent blogger. Then I was working for The Atlantic. I was working for Slate. I founded Vox with a bunch of other people who had that same background as I did. And it was such a like joyous occasion. Uh, the institution evolved over time for, you know, mostly good reasons or I'm not glad that so many of my colleagues got poached by the New York Times, but it was like good for them and good for the New York Times. Uh, but it, it evolved into an institution that was different, less personal, less kind of idiosyncratic. The early blogging days, which Strongtown started as a blog in 08, was a lot of fun, right? It was. Yeah. And so what, what, what I wanted to do with my site, slowboring.com, is do a thing that would be like me. It can be personal. It can be idiosyncratic. I can uh, tell you this thing about bus driver unions without it being like thrown into this maw of internal institutional politics, things like that. Um, and where I can, you know, focus on what is most interesting to me. Uh, so if you check it out or check out my Twitter feed, Matt Iglesias up there, I'm uh, perhaps excessively engaged <laughs> with, 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 with people up there. You know, big picture, we spent a lot of time in this discussion talking about, you know, what can we do politically that takes into account sort of conflicting values and gets out of uh, sort of people's bubbles and silos. And I think that a lot of media right now, digital media, is too much silo stuff. It is a lot of young college graduates living in big cities, mostly talking to each other and trying to impress each other. And that doesn't do it's not the kind of work that I think is interesting. I I share a lot of ideas in common with other young college graduates living in big cities, but I don't feel like us having a competition to sort of like outdo each other in our cosmopolitan leftist sensibilities is useful to even the communities that we live in. I mean, that's where you get back to the to the bus unions, right? Like if if you want to make these cities better, you actually have to address the pathologies that are internal to the local ideological dynamics. If you want to make the country better, you need to develop ideas that can be appealing in Senate races that happen in Montana and, and North Dakota and things like that. And so I wanted to create a site that has a business model that facilitates doing that work that I think is important, um, which is just different from you know where we're at in so much digital media today. The book is One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger, Matthew Iglesias. Do me a favor. If you're ever in Minnesota, make sure you let me know. I would love to host you here up in Brainerd. I'd, I'd love to walk around town and uh, and uh, share this place with you. Yeah, we will do. Next time we're back to traveling. Uh, <laughs> I, hope, I hope it happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, please keep in touch. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been a great conversation. I hope people check out the book. This is going to run January 4th starting. Okay. So Great time. we will be in the new year, but I hope your end of the uh, 
end of 2020 turns out to be delightful. And uh, I hope your 2021 <laughs> is beautiful. <laughs> Likewise. It's a good end of the year and hopefully a better year next year. Let's all plan on that. Thank you, man. <laughs> Thank you. You take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.